Scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 1:15 through 2:10. Exodus 1:15 through 2:10. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, "When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live." But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brandy. Good morning, everyone. Take your Bibles and go over that text if you're not there already. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just say two things. First, tonight is our monthly Fresh Encounter service, uh, our time where we pray together as a church family. And if you want to be encouraged in prayer, encouraged about what God is doing, you want to come tonight. Let me tell you why. You're going to hear tonight five different stories of the ways in which God has specifically answered prayer, in some cases specifically answered prayer because of what we prayed during a Fresh Encounter night. So you want to come tonight and uh, be encouraged, hear what God is doing. It's just going to be a great celebration of uh, God's action among us as we pray. So he does what he does, but he wants us to pray as he does what he does. So that's tonight at 6 o'clock. At 5 o'clock, just an hour prior to that, my wife and I, along with uh, one of our um, elders and his wife, will be here. We'll be in the prayer room. If there's a particular need going on in your life that uh, you just need special prayer for, we're going to be here. would love to uh, just uh, spend a few moments praying for you and, uh, and ministering to you that way. So we'll be here at 5 o'clock um, as well, okay? Uh, finally, there is a group of people who serve you every single week on Sunday that are behind the scenes. These are our fa- this is our facility team, made up of Todd, Teresa, Hugo, Debbie, Joey, Tyler, Musa, and Daryl, and uh, this 
this is one year into being in this facility. Last year, this time, we moved into this facility. And you need to know that every single week, these folks make sure it's clean, it's workable, the seats work, you can hear well and find a parking spot, all these things. And I just wanted to recognize and honor these folks. And I hope that you understand how important they are for this ministry. Do you know that? They're great people. Amen. I leave here, you know, after the third service, and I see the mess you make, and uh, and they get to clean it up and do it with such great hearts. In fact, the last guy in there, Daryl, you know, every tree in our property would have likely died this summer if it wasn't for Daryl's tireless efforts to water trees all throughout the hot summer. So when it was like really, really hot, Daryl's out there serving Jesus with joy, watering trees for the glory of God. I'm so grateful for that team. They do a great job. So as you see them today around the facility, thank them, bless them, encourage them. They're a great group of people. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we need you to teach us now the very foundations of words that are important to us, that we see and love in the New Testament that are birthed in this wonderful book of Exodus. We need you to help us to understand things within this text inspired by you for our spiritual benefit and encouragement We need you to use this passage today to remind us about the gospel and what it means for Jesus to have saved us from our sins. And so I pray today that you would use this word, that you, Jesus, would be honored, that you, Father, would be glorified as we hear from you, from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The summer... Our family took a trip that we had been planning for many years. <clears throat> We're one of those weird people that Kevin DeYoung in his book, Hole in Our Holiness, disparaged last week. I read that quote to you about camping. Yes, we work all year so we can live outside for a couple of weeks. So we did this long trip out west, and we went to places like, you may be familiar with some of these places, uh, Custer State Park, um, Yellowstone, the Grand Tetons, Badlands. We, we did this great trip. Some of you have done it. I recommend every family in America needs to spend, you know, 75 hours in a car together over a couple of weeks. It's a great experience. So talk about sanctification moments. I'm telling you, it's, uh, it was really good. So in the midst of our travels, we went to Mount Rushmore, a scene I'm sure you're all familiar with. You have four faces of American presidents etched in the granite of the Black Hills of South Dakota. Can you name them? George Washington, Jefferson, good, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. So each one of them represent a particular era in American history, and they're all there for various reasons in terms of their contribution to our republic. If there was a biblical Mount Rushmore, the face of Moses would surely be on it. Moses is the quintessential leader of the nation of Israel, the man who was known as delivering God's law, the mediator between the sinful Israelites and a holy God, the man who was meek beyond measure, a man who Israel would look at as really their their ultimate leader. The book of Exodus tells us a lot about Moses, and we're going to learn a lot about him over the next number of weeks. But what you need to know is that while Moses is a dominant figure in the book of Exodus, Exodus is not about Moses. Last week we saw that Exodus isn't even about Israel. Exodus is about who? 
Exodus is about God. That's right. This book is a canvas upon which the glory of God is seen. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at the way in which Exodus reveals a God who hears. So the first six chapters, we're going to hear in Exodus that God hears. He heard their groaning. And we're going to see even today the way in which in the midst of a very dark, dark day, God hears their groaning and begins to do something. Then over the next nine months, we're going to look at the the other sections of this book. The God who redeems, the God who provides, the God who commands, the God who is holy, and the God who is near. And what I want you to see throughout this book is this book isn't about Moses. It's not about Israel. Essentially, this book is about God. It is about the display of His glory. Hopefully from last week, you'll remember... Or if you weren't here, let me give you this quick review. This book is foundational to what we know in the New Testament. Without the book of Exodus, we wouldn't know terms like the Lamb of God, Passover, unleavened bread, the Ten Commandments. The whole sacrificial system was unknown prior to Exodus. The Levitical priesthood was unknown. God revealing himself as the I Am All of these things were unknown. And for that matter, even the most foundational truth of the Bible, that being salvation itself, really begins to dawn in this wonderful book. Even what we looked at last month regarding the mortification of sin, um, we talked about things like slavery to sin, freedom in Christ, uh, righteousness that comes through a blood sacrifice, and the seriousness of sin. Even last month, August, is linked to this whole idea of the truths that we see in this foundational book. So today what we're going to look at is this. Essentially, that God delivers His people in dark days through surprising ways. What happens in this book is it gets really, really dark, and then God begins to move. As He does throughout history, as He's done in your own life, and also as He very specifically did in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the midst of dark days, God moves in ways that are just unbelievable. And so we're going to see that today. We're going to first look at the dark days of uh, Moses and all what's going on. And then also we're going to see his entrance, secondly, into the world in regards to what it means for him to be a deliverer. And then finally we're going to complete the ark all the way into the New Testament. And we're going to see about another baby that was born and how he brought deliverance as well. So first, the dark days of Egypt. The, The first chapter of Exodus sets the stage for us. As to how dark this season is. Last week we learned that Israel was growing numerically and because of that, Pharaoh began to enact a policy of trying to um, suppress the population growth of the Israelites. A nationalistic fervor had taken over Egypt and there was a fear that if the Israelites got too strong and an invading army came, that the Israelites would side with this invading army and the Egyptians would lose their nation. They, they probably had just taken it back in terms of a nationalistic uprising had thrown out the foreign invaders and, and they didn't want to lose it again. And so they began first to deal shrewdly, then to begin to oppose them, and then eventually ruthlessly put them under the bond of slavery. There was a governmental policy of oppression with the hopes that by suppressing the people, they would have some level of national security. However, when those conditions didn't produce the desired effect, the nation of Israel was still growing, Pharaoh's um, plan didn't work, he developed a new plan. And we see this in verse 15. 
we find that the king of Egypt, as he is called, or Pharaoh, calls upon two Hebrew midwives. Notice that they're named in your text. Their names are Shipra and Pua. It should be noted here that they're named. The reason they're named is because these women are to be honored. They're to be honored, as you'll see in a little bit, of some of the courageous things that they did. And so as a memorial to what they did, and really so that they could be hailed as heroes, their names are listed, and clearly, as we'll see in a little bit, they were blessed by God. Look at verse 16. Here we find Pharaoh's instructions, and his instructions are clear, and they are sinister. He says this, When you serve as midwife to these Hebrew women, by the way, these two women probably represented the midwife hierarchy. They're probably in charge of the midwives of Egypt. So he says to them, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So it seems that Pharaoh's first step is to do this is to encourage these women to take the male babies and to somehow, without the mother or father knowing, to create a scenario that it looks as though that child died at birth. The reason I say that is if it became known that male babies were dying and that these women were murdering them, the Israelites surely would have stopped calling the midwives. And so Pharaoh's initial idea, his initial plan, is that while they're giving birth, do something to the male baby so that the mother and father think that the baby tragically died at birth. It would be unknown that other people had the same experience. It would take them years to figure out that there were all kinds of male babies that were dying around them, and they wouldn't be able to put it all together fast enough. And so what Pharaoh is advocating here is this, this quiet, private murdering of innocent children. Pharaoh is doing this for his own protection, And he's advocating here for this quiet and deceptive killing of these infants. Because after all, mass graves would raise too many suspicions. If you rounded up all the children who were were, were born as males and just slaughtered them, it would create an uproar. So killing them one at a time and doing it privately and quietly is is a better plan. Verse 17 tells us what the midwives did. Text says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Notice that the text says that they feared God. It means that they had a greater respect, a greater context for obeying God than they did for Pharaoh. And what they did here, church, is they engaged in civil disobedience. The government told them to do one thing, Pharaoh told them to do one thing, but they knew that doing that would violate, their conscience would violate what God had told them to do, the preservation of life, and as a result, they civilly disobeyed. You need to know that this is something that every believer should be prepared to do if and when it is necessary. Whether it's in your school as a student, in regards to something you're asked to do, whether it's in your workplace whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in relationships that you have with people, or whether it's some sort of law of our land. Biblical history and Christian history is filled with men and women who claim the name of Christ, who said, I don't care who you are or what you do to me, I will not disobey God. And the reality is that the Bible is filled with people who did this over and over and over. For instance, take Peter and the other apostles. They were told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. So, rather than take the lives of these innocent 
children, Shipra and Pua, refused to obey the orders of a wicked ruler. Even though Pharaoh wanted privately and quietly to murder these children, they refused to obey his instructions. Now, let me just pause here. Pull us out of Exodus. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. And, and frankly, I can't pass by the text without saying a few words about our own cultural issues, specifically about the issue of abortion. I read a statistic this week from our ministry partner, Life Centers. They have a booth out in the um, atrium area that last year they were able to record the saving of 274 babies. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that number. I don't feel that number. Do you feel 274? I don't feel it. So let me try and help you feel it. Those of you who received a card this morning, ask you to stand in the middle of my sermon. Here's your chance. So stand right now. These are 274 human beings. I just want you to look around and realize that every person standing represents a child, a life that was saved in 2011. Thank you, you can be seated. What's more, think of this, annually for like the last thing is 10 years or so, a million or more babies have been aborted every year in our country. You know how many a million is? That take 555 sanctuaries this size, and that's what a million people is. A year. See, each life is important and valuable, and part of the problem is that there are no mass graves to raise our outrage. Because it's quiet, because it's private, we tend not to feel like it's a tragedy when it is. I also want you to notice Pharaoh's rationale, because that also sounds culturally familiar. You know, it's a very unusual thing to desire the death of a defenseless child. And in order to justify the murder of a child, something has to eclipse the conscience. And in Pharaoh's case, it was the protection of the nation. The male children had to die in order, listen, to protect their way of life. Does that sound familiar? Listen to me. Our cultural problem with abortion is not that we don't value life. Our problem is that we value other things over and atop of life. There are other things that we feel like are more important. And this is exactly what the same problem was in Egypt, which led to the justification of the murder of these children. The lives of these children were expendable because there was something that was more important. And then finally, I want you to notice that these, these women were prepared to take action even at great personal risk. And while culturally we're not at the point yet where civil disobedience is required, I don't know about you, but it feels like that day is getting closer and closer. I don't know how, how much longer it will be and that I can say whatever I want to say according to the scriptures publicly. I don't, I don't know where things are headed, but it feels like there's coming a point in time in, in our history when civil disobedience for evangelical Christians is going to be required. Until that day comes, And I just want to put that on your radar, that there were generations of people throughout church history who faced those issues, thought through those things, and chose to side with God. Until that day comes, I would encourage you to do two things. Until that day comes, do two things. First, give financially to organizations that are on the front line of this battle. So right now... um, Life centers are trying to raise $100,000 with their uh, walk for life, their run for life thing. I'd invite you to join our family in supporting someone to do that. I'd love to see them hit their target because every money, every dollar that we give helps to save lives like 274 lives last year. I had a part in that. 
And if you give, you have a part in that as well. But here's the second thing. I want to encourage you, as you think about this fall, to vote for people at every level of government who match your values, especially when it comes to important biblical issues like life and the sanctity of biblical marriage. I'm not being political, please. Please, I'm not being political. I'm not telling you who to vote for. But let me just say this. These issues were spiritual issues before they were ever political issues. And even when they are political issues, they still are spiritual issues, which require us to talk about them and speak into them. So these two issues are incredibly important. I'm fairly certain that if Shipra and Pua could have used every legal means or used a vote or used their money before they had to directly disobey Pharaoh, they would have certainly chosen to do that. And so before we come to the point where we have to actually civilly disobey Can we first use the rights, the freedom, and the ability that we have to do something, to make a statement about these things that are so important and central to some of the things that we hold dear? Now, back to verse 18. In verse 18, we discover that Pharaoh learns that his plan was not working. It must have taken some time, but apparently he woke up to the fact that there's still a lot of male babies around. Male kids are, there's still a where are all these male kids coming from? And so as a result, he pulled the two women into his court, verse 18, he says, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Well, the midwives give an answer that I think is actually a little bit humorous. They say, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. In other words, they're not wimpy, right? And they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, some people view what they said here as a lie. Two ways to solve this. Some argue that they lied, but that there was nothing wrong with it because Pharaoh, as a wicked ruler, had given up his right to be truthfully obeyed. One commentary says this, A lie was told to protect innocent lives from a man who had no right to the truth. That's one way to solve it. Here's another one. The other possibility is that the women were in fact telling the truth. That the Hebrew women were giving birth before they got there. What would you do if you were told you had to kill male babies? Well, you might begin to tell people who were formerly in your care, look, don't call me anymore. Don't call me. Just just give birth on your own. Maybe they trained other people so that they didn't have to get involved. Or maybe they, 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 they were there at the beginning stages of birth and then left when the actual child was physically born. Whatever they did, it worked. And as a result... God was pleased. Look at verse 20. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Incidentally, you were usually a midwife because you were barren and not able to conceive children. So imagine the joy. Here these women have obeyed God, and He blessed them with their own children. Notice what happens next, though. Pharaoh, having been thwarted, now ramps up his campaign of death. Since he couldn't use the midwives to accomplish his evil plan, now he enlists the entire nation. Verse 21 or 22. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Imagine what this is like. Feel this. At at first we have midwives who are told, just kill these infants quietly. Now Pharaoh issues an edict to the entire nation. Every single person has this edict over them. When you see a male baby, throw him into the Nile. Can you imagine what this is like? It's reminiscent of um, 
Nazi Germany, when Jews could be reported by their neighbors or for people could be reported for hiding Jews and things of that sort. That kind of culture, that kind of oppression is, is awful. He, he issues this, this nationwide decree of genocide. The effect would be that no male baby would be safe. There were certainly military sweeps that would come through the Israelite residences, but now you had to worry about a neighbor or people near you if anyone saw your child. And then they could take the law into their own hands and simply imagine, throw your baby into the Nile River. Horrible stories must have emerged of events like this happening. Throw them into the Nile. You need to notice something about this, the naming of the river Nile. The Nile's important for two reasons. First, it would be a convenient and easily accessible way for people to follow Pharaoh's command. And rather than taking the law into their own hands physically and killing the baby, they could simply throw them into the Nile and let the Nile do it child would simply fall into the water and disappear out of sight and hopefully from the Egyptian conscience out of mind. There's another thing about the Nile you need to know that would make this killing easier from a moral standpoint, that the Egyptians in their pantheistic worldview viewed the Nile as a god, a giver and a taker of life. And so by throwing a a baby into the Nile, the Egyptians may have believed or they may have been led to believe that they were simply doing the will of the gods by giving the Nile its proper due among all the other gods. So by using the Nile, Pharaoh not only gives his people a convenient way to follow his edict, but also provides a moral context where they could justify it. So evil then had begun to reign in the country of Egypt. It became dark with death, and it was mixed with all of these religious views. And this becomes important later on for our study in Exodus, as the Nile and the context of water becomes a very important metaphor. In fact, think of with me of what was the first plague. The Nile was turned to blood. Think, for instance, that in the Passover, a firstborn child in every home was killed. Think, for instance, of the crossing of the Red Sea. They're crossing a a large, ominous body of water. And then think also that Pharaoh's army goes into that Red Sea and then is drowned. All of those things are significant, and they're tied to this idea of throwing these babies into the Nile River. In fact, let me show you this. Look at Exodus 15 and verse 1. This is the song of Moses. This is what they sang after they came out of Egypt, after they crossed the Red Sea, and after Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed. Look at what what they sing in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Now question. Was Pharaoh and his army thrown into the sea? No. They, they, they drove into the sea, right? And then God sent the water. So why say the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea? Here's why. Because in the same way that the Egyptians threw the male babies into the sea, now God has enacted his judgment and thrown Pharaoh and his army into the sea. See? So this idea of Nile and water and God's judgment are very important in our understanding of this book. For that matter, water in general is often associated with evil or judgment. Think, for instance, of the great judgment of God upon the world. What did he use? 
a flood, Genesis chapter 6. Think of um, the Israelites crossing through the, the Red Sea. There's this ominous thing that they pass through, and God saves them and delivers them through it. Think even in the waters of baptism. A person goes down into the death of Christ and comes out. Those waters symbolize judgment. They symbolize evil presence in the world. For that matter, take your Bible, look at the end of the Bible. Look at Genesis, or excuse me, Genesis, Revelation 21. And look at verse 1. This idea of water and judgment and evil also shows up here. Revelation 21, this is the end, the, the, the end of the story in the, in the context of the Scriptures. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then notice what it says here. And the what sea was no more. This idea of evil, judgment, is pictured in the context of water. The Nile River, the Red Sea, the flood. And we see this begin to emerge in Exodus. We discover that God is going to pay the Egyptians back for what they did to the Israelites. Now, put all this together, and what you get is a sense of the dark days of Egypt, don't you? I mean, just think of what the environment was like. The, the Israelites have experienced increasing opposition. They've experienced ruthless slavery. And now we have a government-sanctioned policy of genocide involving everyone in the nation of Egypt. And then think also in the New Testament, didn't Jesus' birth have a similar genocide connected with it? When King Herod learned that a king of the Jews had been born, what did he do? He sent and slaughtered all of the male children up to a particular age in the city of Bethlehem, such that Jesus and his family have to go on the run. And where did they run to? They ran to Egypt, such that Matthew says it could fulfill the text that says, out of Egypt I have brought my son. See, all these things are all connected. And for that matter, it's not just connected in terms of the symbol, it's also connected that God is setting up a very, very dark backdrop. And on the dark backdrop of these difficult days will emerge a deliverer. A deliverer who will save his people, not just from bondage, but in the New Testament, will save people from the bondage of their sin. So the story of Exodus is the story of redemption. That out of a hopeless, dangerous, and evil environment, God rescued His people. These days were dark. They were really dark. And yet God is about to move. So, here's the second thing. We see that the Deliverer is born. Immediately after the dark picture in chapter 1, the birth of Moses is introduced. And this is a familiar pattern, a pattern that will emerge again in the New Testament, that in the midst of dark circumstances, the Christ child is born. Verse 1 begins with the identification of the family lineage into which Moses was born. He was born of the tribe of Levi. Levi, or as a Levite, Moses would be one of a series of mediator and leaders, those who were the spiritual shepherds of God's people. The Levites become the tribe out of which come the priests and the high priest who serve the people of God and leave the people of God. According to verse 2, Moses' mother defies the Egyptian command about killing male babies, and instead she hides him for a period of three months. 
Look at verse 2. The woman conceived, bore a son, and when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him three months. About three months, you know, from raising children, that they get kind of loud at about three months. And as a result, couldn't safely hide him any longer, and so she had to devise a plan in order to keep him safe. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch, put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Don't miss the fact that she's placing the child on the Nile in a basket. And by the way, this basket, the same Hebrew word is used in Genesis 6-8 to to refer to the ark. So in the same way that God delivered Noah from the judgment of the world and saved his people, in the same way he now will deliver Moses from the evil and the environment of the Egyptians. Great parallels here. Once again, God will save his people through the protection of an ark. But in this case, it's a small little basket floating on the Nile River. He's put there because, a couple reasons, when he's loud during the day, the Outdoor sounds will be able to, to muffle his cries, and so he'll be safe. could be a, an easy way for when a military sweep was coming through their area, she could put Moses in the, in the basket and put him on the Nile River and keep him safe in that regards. And then, just to be sure that everything was taken care of, Miriam, his sister, in verse 4, was posted nearby. What happens next is just remarkable. So Pharaoh has a large family, many children, and um, had a lot of outposts along the Nile River. And apparently, his one of his daughters was going down to the Nile to bathe. She discovers the basket, asks for it to be brought to her, and then opens it and recognizes that it's an Israelite baby. Now just pause for a moment there. What is she supposed to do? Can you imagine being Miriam watching this scene? This daughter finds the basket, opens it up, says it's a Hebrew baby. She's supposed to take the baby and throw him in the river. And in that moment, in God's mercy, the text says she took pity on him. Don't you know God was behind that? He, he, he orchestrated the affections of her heart that she took pity on him. And so she disobeys the very command that had been given from Pharaoh in the royal household. Miriam then quickly runs and begins a conversation with Pharaoh's daughter, asking if she would like someone to nurse him. And then the dramatic moment in the text hinges on verse 8 where she says, go. Can you imagine what Miriam said when she got home? Mom, uh, the basket was discovered and Pharaoh's daughter um, has our little boy and they're on their way and I've offered you to nurse him. Imagine what's going through Moses' mother's heart at that moment. And then in a, a rather awkward exchange no doubt the mother and pharaoh's daughter meet and pharaoh's daughter says take this child away and nurse him for me and i will give you your wages it's crazy so in a culture get this where male babies are supposed to be killed this one is put in hiding only to be discovered by someone in the royal family then he's put under the protection of the royal family His mother is paid to nurse him until the day he's delivered to Pharaoh's daughter to become her adopted son. That's crazy. Only God could orchestrate that, right? 
Only God could do that. It's an amazing story of His providential protection and care. Notice here that every detail is orchestrated by a gracious God who aims to rescue His people. Do you know that every detail of your life is also orchestrated by that same God? Who is concerned for you, who loves you, who wants to take care of you? Can you think back of your life? I can in mine. There are moments where you just see God's hand. Now you can see it more clearly. At the time, it was hard to see it. I mean, I, really, my journey to College Park began at a beach in Gull Lake, Michigan in the summer of 1992. Let me explain how. I was sitting in a lawn chair reading a book next to a professor from the college I was attending. And I said, hey, do you know anybody who's maybe interested in having an intern next year? He said, actually, yeah, my church is. That church happened to be Clear Creek Chapel. Pastor of that church happened to be John Street, who I went there, became an intern. It was through John Street that I met had a lunch one time with Dr. James Greer, who asked me why in the world I was going so far away to seminary. Why don't I come to Grand Rapids? Which I then said, well, okay. And then that led to a mentoring relationship. And then that's the way that I ended up here. So I started coming here in 1992 at a beach in Gull Lake, Michigan, right? And by the way, uh, Jim Greer, I just mentioned his name. He's a dearly loved man of this church. He has terminal cancer. Uh, He's given three to four months to live and pray with us that October the 7th we're trying to arrange for him to come back and preach one more time at College Park Church before the Lord likely uh, takes him home in the next year. So pray with us that that will work out in God's providence. You can think of all those details in life. It would almost make you tremble, wouldn't it, if it wasn't for the kind graces of God. He knows what he's doing, even to the finest of details. That's really hopeful if right now you're in that position that I call the dark side of God's will, where you're like, what in the world is going on? How is this all going to work out? What is going on? How, how is this all going to Listen, one day it will all make sense. Until now, you just have to trust. God's in control. He's got it. He's got you. Like he had Moses, like he has all of our lives. Now, the text ends with Moses being given this name that we are familiar with that I've already used a number of times, but it's the first time that it's mentioned in the book. Exodus 2.10, this is where the text reaches its apex. When the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Don't forget this. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And that's how the text ends. But it ends with this phenomenal statement, I drew him out of the water. His name was chosen because it sounds like, in in, in Egyptian, like the same word that it means to draw out. So his adoptive mother gave him this name because she symbolically wanted to give evidence that I drew him out of the water. But don't miss the irony here. Remember, like I told you before, that water in, refers to, to judgment or evil or oppression. And the name Moses implies that out of a season of great hardship and great trial comes one who will deliver his people. I drew him out of the water. His name is Moses. He comes out of trial. He comes out of situations of evil. Out of the very river into which Pharaoh had ordered babies to be drowned, a baby is drawn out by the daughter of Pharaoh. Only God could turn that irony like that. Further, the name Moses means to draw out, and it's by this man that the whole nation of Israel will be drawn out from Egypt in order to be able to meet with God. Moses will become the leader of a drawn-out people. So when you hear the name Moses, 
You have to think about all of the symbolic significance connected into that name. All of that to say that these first two chapters are helping us to see that in the midst of a very dark and difficult day, God orchestrates the adoption of Moses in order to eventually deliver his people from slavery. So so out of this, this ash heap of suffering and trial comes a glimmer of hope. God had provided a deliverer for his people. The problem is, is that nobody in Egypt knows this yet. Nobody in Israel knows this yet. Moses becomes the greatest leader of Israel, and he's been drawn out of the very waters that have been used to kill their children. God delivers his people from the darkest of dark days in surprising ways. He hears their cry for help, even using the very vehicle for their suffering to deliver his people. Don't you know that the Bible tells us in the New Testament that he does the exact same thing? We're to consider it joy when we experience various trials. Know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing the enemy can do. There's no evil that can uh, harm you or hurt you or overtake you such that doesn't fit into the overall plan and providence of God. You are free because God is in the process of delivering you even though things are very hard and dark. Now, this whole story is leading to another baby. And that's where we have to return the other baby deliverer. When you read the text, you can't help remember the way in which God brought about the ultimate deliverance in the new covenant through Jesus. And by the new covenant, I mean the way in which God takes people who aren't enslaved to a nation. No, they're enslaved to their own sinful hearts. See, listen to me. Your problem and my problem It's not the people around us. It's not the context. It's not the families we were born into. As problematic as those things are, the real problem is an internal slavery. The Bible says it's a slavery to sin. It's the reason that you do things you don't want to do, and you keep doing them even though you know they're so destructive. And you can't stop. You can't help yourself. And for that matter, it's even worse because the Bible says that God is holy and you're not. And that's a huge issue. God will judge you. He will condemn you to hell and be fully just in doing so because you are unrighteous and He is holy. And yet the message of the Bible in the New Covenant is that God sends a baby. Jesus comes in the form of a baby in a city of Bethlehem. He grows up, lives a perfect life, and then dies on the cross in order to pay atonement for sin. He becomes the Lamb of God in Exodus. He becomes the means by which you can be freed, not from external slavery, but freed from internal slavery. A slavery that comes because of fundamentally who you are. And what happens when a person repents of their sin and receives Christ as their Savior, Jesus comes and makes you new from the inside. He sets you free from the inside out. The picture that the Bible gives us is what we see in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You see all the parallels in Exodus? Well, the point of what Paul is saying here is this, is that God aims to make you a son by freeing you from the internal slavery that comes because of your indwelling sin, and that comes through a personal relationship with Christ. 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the darkness of our own hearts, and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So listen to me, Exodus is as much about this gospel as the entire New Testament is, and that is this, that you're only made right with God, you only have your sins forgiven, you're only freed from the slavery on the inside by a personal relationship with the baby deliverer named Jesus. You see, Jesus delivers people from the domain of darkness. That's what the message of the whole Bible is about. But it's Jesus who provides that ultimate redemption. Moses and the Israelites, they're a picture, but they're not the full picture. It's Jesus who frees those who put their faith in him from the slavery of sin. In Exodus, the deliverer is named Moses because he was drawn out of the water. But in the New Testament, the deliverer's name is Jesus because he saves people from their sins. Moses delivers people out of Egypt. Jesus delivers people from the sin that dwells within. And for you to understand the book of Exodus, you have to understand who Jesus is. And when you understand who Jesus is, this book just comes alive as you see over and over and over the wonderful parallels to the greatest story in all of the world that Jesus came to rescue sinners from bondage, the bondage of their own heart. Jesus, he's named that because he's come to save people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would... Remind us of the truths of this important reality called redemption. That today you might even help us to understand afresh and anew the significance, the power of what it means to having been set free from sin, from the slavery of our own souls. And that throughout the pages of this glorious book of Exodus, you help us to see over and over the dawn of this beautiful reality called salvation. Lord, today for men and women who are here today who have never settled this issue, who today are under judgment because they've never really bent the knee, confessed their sin, and come to faith in Christ, I pray that today would be the day where they would say, Lord Jesus, it's time for me to receive you as my Savior. I need you to free me from the bondage of my own soul. And Lord, I pray that you'd come, awaken hearts and minds today, and draw people into your kingdom. And then, Lord, as we look at this glorious book, help us to see you over and over and over and over and to be overjoyed with the beautiful reality of what it means to be saved from our sins. We thank you and we praise you, asking all these things in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Afterwards, some of our folks are up here. They're here to pray with you if there's something going on in your soul. They're here to serve you today if you've got something going on in your life, okay? God bless you, Couch Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.